HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to your customers. Shift your business and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash snacky. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. Um, we know that this has been a very heavy and hard week for a lot of people and a lot of our listeners. And there's been a lot of self-examination on our end as well. And a lot of conversations with colleagues uh, who are Black and part of the restaurant industry and part of the media. And we are going to be sharing some of those conversations over the next few weeks. We just want to share our support and say that we are here for any conversation that anyone wants to have, um, easy or hard, about how we can help lend our support and lend more of a voice to the Black community um, as we look at our relationship. Um, Heritage Radio Network has a lot of great resources at heritageradionetwork.org if you're looking for more ways to help support and great publications like the LA Times and other newspapers around America have provided a list of Black-owned restaurants and businesses that you can support uh, with both your voice, money, social amplification, any way that you want to get involved. And there's a lot of great places if you want to march and share your support. Uh, we know that we cannot pivot immediately and that we want to make sure that we give fair time and uh, fair thought to some of these conversations. And while we work on those and get ready to share those, we still have some conversations about COVID-19 and about the restaurant industries uh, being affected by it. And today we have uh, Naomi Pomeroy, who's the chef and owner at Beast and Expatriate and uh, owner of Colibri Flower Shop in Portland and Robert J. Nelson, who's a partner at Leaf, Cabraser Hyman, and Bernstein, talking about justice for restaurants and about lawsuits that have been filed against insurance companies and about the current state of um, peril that a lot of these restaurants are in because of insurance refusal to pay or take any responsibility uh, for the COVID-19 situation. And then we have a really great performance 
from Kip Berman, uh, whose new project, The Natural, is really great, uh, really beautiful, artistic uh, guy. His guitar, just a lot of great lyrics. So, you know, please get in touch if you want to have a spot to have a conversation. And please enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. About music with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Up in the wind, looking in, I saw you with a violin, and you played a tune you wrote yourself. Robert, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to sit down with us on Snacky Tunes. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. So for anyone who hasn't been following along with the current situation with restaurants and the issues with their insurance companies, I'd love for you to do a little bit of table setting so people can understand the deep dive we're about to get into. Naomi, maybe you should start. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, so let's see. I think my story, if I just tell the Beast story of, uh, you know, closing down Beast and then and my cocktail bar expatriate, it's probably going to follow 
a similar parallel story to anybody else in the industry. The timeline's pretty similar, no matter where you were at. Uh, certain cities closed slightly earlier, but um, yeah, March thirteenth, uh, Friday the thirteenth. Uh, I gathered up with a, what I thought was just going to be a couple of my friends in the restaurant industry here in Portland to sort of discuss, you know, what we were going to do. Um, to shut our businesses down. You know, we realized we saw New York um, starting to mandate uh, social distancing enclosures. And, and then, um, you know, we knew we'd have to follow suit and we wanted to get ahead of the curve and kind of, you know, um, make a plan that everyone could stand by together. So we ended up actually, instead of just being a few friends, we ended up being about 50 to 60 concerned restaurant owners that were all discussing, you know, the, the painful situation we were facing with having to shut our businesses down and not really knowing, um, you know, what kind of recourse we would have. Um, you know, we want to take care of our staffs, we want to protect them and keep them healthy. And of course, um, there was very little information out there about the correct ways to do that. So most of us felt that shuttering was going to be the better, better way to go for that, you know, um, for keeping our staff and customers safe during this crisis. And then, um, Kate Brown, our governor, shut uh, Oregon restaurants down about four or five days later. Um, and, you know, it's we filed insurance claims like the, I think I filed my insurance claim on like the 17th. There's just a couple of days after closing down, you know, so letting them know right away that I needed to file for business interruption insurance because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, my business was interrupted by this, you know, for, force of exactly. nature, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, I was met with, okay, well, you know, we'll report, you know, we'll, we'll file that claim for you. And, and then of course, you know, following that, I got a series of denial letters for all three of my businesses actually. And, and that is something, you know, I started this, um, this group chat online. Um, we formed this, uh, Portland independent restaurant Alliance. And what I saw in the group chats that we were having, um, we created a Slack channel and everyone started, you know, kind of talking about issues with landlords and issues with, you know, healthcare benefits and getting, you know, uninsurance, you know, unemployment insurance claims settled with the state, which took forever too. A big, huge concern that was resonating within the community was about business interruption insurance and how every single person's, you know, there's 300 people on that Slack channel of independent Portland businesses that are all food related that had each had their claims denied. I didn't hear of a single person that was having any success um, with filing their claims. And, and some of us, you know, have virus exclusions and some of us didn't, and it didn't seem to matter. They were, they were blanketly being denied. So why are they being denied? Because I had heard that a lot of insurance policies had removed viral infections from the policy um, a few years ago. But since this is obviously a force majeure, or some people do even have viral coverage, what is the insurance policy's mindset for this, these denials? So this is Robert. Let me chime in. Um, it appears as though the insurers are, and, and there are many, many, many insurers, uh, dozens uh, and you know, throughout the United States, it appears that they've made a sort of an across-the-board decision 
that uh, they were going to deny these claims, all of them, irrespective of the kind of uh, policy uh, that any business had. They essentially just made a, it appears that they've made a policy across the board decision to reject uh, these claims. Um, as you mentioned, some of these uh, policies do have a virus exclusion. Mm-hmm. Some of these policies have a force majeure uh, provision. Um, many of them don't. Um, and there are important arguments that business owners um, should be making uh, because it appears as though um, the uh, there are very there are credible arguments uh, that should be made uh, against these insurance carriers uh, for these businesses to get uh, their business interruption insurance. And uh, it, of course, every many of these policies do differ. Um, uh, but that said, all of the policies should be reviewed very very carefully uh, to determine whether or not uh, it makes sense to bring suit. And we've. You know, we've looked at, you know, hundreds of these policies at this point and believe that the um, insureds, the restaurants, have important and credible arguments uh, to be made. And uh, since the, ins- you know, since the carriers are denying them wholesale, um, we're going to have to have uh, these decisions made by a judge, ultimately. And so that's why we have decided to file suits lawsuits on behalf of restaurants uh, throughout the United States. Is it safe to assume that insurance companies knew that this would eventually have to go to the courts and that because it is so widespread that it could bankrupt or significantly, you know, damage what they have in their, in their bank that they felt it was easier just to deny across the board and set this up to go to trial. Yeah. So that's, uh, a, a hypothesis, uh, that makes sense maybe. Uh, but, uh, the reality is that, uh, you have to honor, uh, your insurance contract. <laughs> yes. Uh, yep. and, and these businesses, uh, have been paying their insurance premiums, uh, often for many years, and uh, you know when there finally is a business interruption that warrants uh, their payment, um, you know that's the time where they're supposed to stand up and 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 help you because you as the insured have been paying your premiums for so long. So they are, you know, making this pitch that if they have to pay, they will go bankrupt. We have no idea if that's true. Uh, they're, you know, arguing it, but they haven't provided any evidence uh, to suggest yeah. that. We do know that, um, you know, the top insurance companies, the top 12 insurance companies have many, many billions of dollars that they, you know, have in reserves. Um, you know, why they decided to do this, uh, that's their business. Um, we think it violates the insurance contracts. And so, uh, the only way to get relief at this point uh, for the restaurants who, you know, as I said, have been paying these premiums for often for many years is, you know, through a lawsuit and through litigation. And so that's uh, what we've decided to do. And, 
Naomi's case is a class action, but it's only against one insurer. Um, right. And that action is not necessarily going to help, um, you know, all of the restaurants out there because there, as I said, there are many, many different insurance companies and um, everybody who has a business who, you know, had business interruption insurance should be, you know, looking at their policies now and tendering and, um, you know, trying to decide whether or not it makes sense to bring a lawsuit. And, in, you know, and in that calculus, I think you need to, you know, speak to a lawyer about it because um, these are important claims uh, that restaurateurs have been paying premiums for for however long. And, uh, you know, when the business is interrupted, which it clearly has been, and there have been significant losses. It's time for the insurance companies to pay up. You talk um, about one of the biggest issues uh, that has popped up, which is ironically or paradoxically what makes all these restaurants so amazing is that they're independent restaurants, independent businesses, but dealing with very similar problems. And while there has been some cohesion and thought, some people might be on the fence about filing or getting involved with the class action. Um, but why is it important for restaurants to come together, for them to file individually, and to show their collective bargaining power? Well, I think they, they can be powerful um, together. Uh, I think the class action mechanism is an important one. Uh, we've, we have filed several class actions thus far, but as I said, um, there are you know, several dozens of uh, insurance companies out there that have provided business interruption insurance. And so a class action um, against farmers is not going to help you if you're insured by State Farm or Nationwide mm. or whatever. And so um, as I you know, really emphasize uh, the uh, every every in, you know any business that has business interruption insurance should take the time to take a look at their policies, share those policies with a lawyer who knows something about insurance coverage, uh, and should make an independent decision as to whether or not to go forward through litigation. Um, in terms of you know why it makes sense. Um, it's very, very easy for a an insurance company to ignore one, two, ten, fifteen, um, you know, claims. But it gets a lot more difficult for them to ignore tens of thousands of claims or more. And uh, you know, potentially that's what's in play here. Um, this, uh, you know, we hope will be, you know, will be uh, an epic battle. Uh, between uh, the restaurateurs, restaurants, and the insurance companies. And uh, without, you know, going to the mat here, um, the insurance company, you know, they're, they're essentially forcing businesses to go to the mat. And by the mat, I mean litigation. And uh, I just don't think there's going to be relief for anybody unless they are willing to step forward. And which, by the way, um, you know, at least if, you know, you work with my law firm and many others, quite frankly, uh, it, it's free to you. That is, there are no upfront costs to filing a lawsuit, um, how we work and how other uh, lawyers work in this area is to do it based on contingency. And so if the if ultimately we're unsuccessful, that would not 
um, you know, mean that businesses would be out, you know, the litigation costs. Those would be costs borne by the law firm. So there's really no downside. And from our perspective, a substantial upside to stepping forward right now and uh, doing what you need to do to perfect your claim, which is to uh, uh, tender the claim, say you've suffered business loss, tender the claim to the insurance company. And once you get the denial, which you inevitably will, uh, then your claim is ready to be filed as a lawsuit. And um, so we would encourage everybody to do what they can to perfect their claims and then take it to the next step. I have to say, yeah, I was going to just explain. I wanted to explain how easy that was, too, because I think right now, you know, from a restaurant owner's perspective, there's a lot on our plates. You know, we're, you know, did we just finally figure out how to get all of our employees, uh, you know, through the uh, unemployment system? You know, are we dealing with negotiating rents, uh, you know, issues with our landlords, figuring out how to pivot our business models? And I think that some people may have the fear that it's going to be too much, you know, work for them. And I think I just want to explain what the process was for me and say that, you know, all I needed to do, of course, I had filed those claims and you want to make sure that if you haven't done it, you do it immediately because um, you don't want to get outside, you know, the window of what your policy allows. Um, and I know that varies policy to policy, but, you know, all I needed to do was literally ask for, you know, my, my broker to send me certified copies of my policy. And then I just forwarded them onto the legal team and they looked, I didn't even read them. You know, I didn't have to do all that. They're 287 pages. Right. <laughs> they make this stuff so difficult for people to understand. So, you know, I think that they, I feel that they do that kind of on purpose, to be honest. Um, and, uh, you know, so don't be intimidated by that. Just feel, I think everybody should sort of try to be confident in the fact that um, it, they, a law firm, a good law firm will help make this easy for you. And, you know, the other thing is, is that it, it maybe feels to some people like a losing battle or it's not going to happen fast enough or my restaurant's going to shut down before I even ever see this money. Um, and of course, you know, while there is some truth to the fact that it could be sort of a long and protracted battle, that doesn't mean that it, on an ethical level, it shouldn't be done. I mean, it should be done. It doesn't really matter how long it takes. And, you know, that's why I spend most of my time working with the Independent Restaurant Coalition right. on trying to get federal funding instead, you know, because I feel like that 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 relief might come a little bit earlier than than, you know, a lawsuit that could take a while. But I still think that you know, pursuing all angles is, is worth Yeah, if I could right. chime in. I mean, it's our, our view is that um, you, the restaurateur, you paid for this uh, insurance. Uh, it wasn't free. You paid premiums specifically for business interruption. And so from our perspective, all we're trying to do is get what is yours what you paid for, what the insurance company bargained to do when it agreed to insure your business. Um, this is not, you know, asking for a handout. This is just asking essentially for you to get what's yours. And that's what the lawsuits are about. And unfortunately, the only way you're going to get it um, is through a lawsuit, at least from the insurance company. I mean, as Naomi mentioned, there there are other efforts ongoing to, you know, perhaps 
seek money from Congress. But this, there's no reason uh, why you can't, you shouldn't be pursuing, um, you know, many fronts. And the lawsuit front, um, you know, is an important one. And, and there's, you know, from our perspective, there's no question that this is yours. This, this insurance is what you paid for. And when it comes time to, to get paid pursuant to your insurance contract, um, it's not the time. And when you're, you know, for many, they've all had to go under. It's not the time for the carriers to just say, oh, sorry, we have we're making this policy decisions that, you know, because this is so important to our livelihoods, we're just not going to we're not going to pay up. Sorry. Um, you know, our perspective, if, 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 if we have a good claim, uh, they should pay up. And if they need to get a bailout and I'm not saying they do or don't, um, then, you know, they're the ones who should be asking, you know, Congress for help. Um, but. Uh, you know, we're entitled to, we meaning the restaurants are entitled to their, um, you know, whatever they bargained for pursuant to their business interruption insurance. Right. Then that makes a lot of sense. Um, we're going to take a quick musical break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about um, the future of how this might shake out and then go back a little bit to how working with the federal government and the insurance companies can create maybe a path forward for restaurants. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org. Tasty trees, your quilt for incomplete. Love will stay in bed, ambivalence your head. Distance into brief, this mongrel lost his keys. Owner set me free, so the ocean cleans my feet. Please, this can't be true Oh, don't be my undone Mother sure will cry When she sees our spark has died Chapel on the hill The freeway onto Will Wedding clothes all gone My Cadillac won't run Tasty treats, your quilts are incomplete. Mother sure will cry when she sees our spark has died. Chapel on the hill, the freeway on to will. Wedding clothes all gone, my cattle like won't run. 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are talking about the current state of the restaurant industry and the issues with the insurance companies. And now that the suits have been filed, what does a relative timeline look like for stuff to be resolved or for stuff to move forward? Um, Are the courts slowed down? Because of the pandemic, is there a way that you can move this forward quickly? Because as we mentioned in the first act, that you know, as this stretches on, some restaurants are going to have a tougher time to stay open. What is the timing on a resolution that you're hopeful for? A handful of suits have been filed. Actually, yes, you know, maybe 15 suits have been filed, but um, that that's only a, you know a minuscule fraction of what of course suits that should be filed and. You know, part of what we are hoping to emphasize today is that each business should be taking responsibility um, for, you know, protecting itself in connection with this effort. Um, so the suits we hope will, you know, will be filed on an ongoing basis um, over the next several months. And, you know, we're hoping that we have hundreds or thousands of lawsuits um, or more um um, you know, over the, you know, over the next several months as, as people realize that they need to represent their interests. But in terms of a timeline, um, the, yes, courts are slowed as a result of the pandemic. Um, that said, you can still file a lawsuit um, and um, pursue a lawsuit. But trials um, and a trial in this case would be you know a year to two years away um, those trials may not be impacted by COVID-19 um, mm. I have trials that were set for June and July of this year and of course those have been um, kicked and unfortunately you know I lose uh, as a plaintiff's lawyer I lose a lot of leverage when I lose a trial date so COVID-19 has impacted, you know, how, you know, how quickly we can do anything. Um, Nonetheless, we can bring lawsuits now and we are, and as you know, and Naomi has brought, you know, a lawsuit on behalf of her restaurant. Um, It's hard to predict uh, how long a lawsuit will take um, because this is, you know, the insurance companies have, you know, stated that their their very livelihood is dependent upon the outcome of these cases. You can expect them to, uh, you know, hire the top lawyers and law firms in the country um, who will do their darndest to extend everything and delay things and um, make it as difficult as possible. That's to be expected. Um, but that said, I think we can um, think about having um, the first initial decisions from judges, you know, within six months or so. Um, and those decisions will be, you know, some will be favorable uh, to the uh, business, uh, you know, the businesses, to the restaurants. Some will be, I'm sure, favorable to the insurance companies. Um, and so it will go. Um, and it may take several years ultimately, but we will have some indication, you know, within six to eight months, uh, at least of the first 
you know, the first lawsuits that have been filed, there probably will be what we call rulings on motions to dismiss. Um, the insurance companies will no doubt claim that there, um, there was no damage to the property. Um, uh, and so their business interruption insurance doesn't apply. And we hope to get a ruling on those, um, on that, you know, very specific, important issue fairly early on in the litigation. Um, and as I said, um, there will be, and there have been lawsuits filed throughout the United States. And as a consequence of that, there probably will be, uh, several different rulings, uh, on these issues. Mm. And, um, it may be that there are inconsistent decisions and we just have to sort through those and, um, there is an effort underway in federal court currently to have the cases be coordinated before a single federal judge. Um, that could happen, um, and a hearing on that, whether or not these cases will be coordinated, will be heard uh, in July, uh, and that will be an interesting decision. Um, if the cases aren't coordinated, then uh, you'll have cases you know, we have a case on behalf of Naomi that's in the District of Oregon. Um, we have cases in the Northern District of California. We have cases in the Southern District of New York. And those cases will proceed, you know, independently. Um, and so, but there will be a decision as to whether or not these federal cases should get coordinated. In California, um, there are there will likely be an effort to coordinate state cases filed in California. Um, that effort is not yet underway, but I anticipate that it will happen, and it could be that um, the California cases will be coordinated. I get the sense that the insurance companies will oppose coordination. I think uh -huh. they'll see coordination as a threat uh, yeah. to the extent that they can keep uh, everybody fighting, you know, independently in their, you know, in their courts throughout the United States. It makes it harder for the plaintiffs to join hands, to join forces, to join, you know, their thinking and, and you know, potentially their experts. Um, you know, to the extent that we're coordinated uh, before a single judge, it's easier to share and to hopefully have strength in numbers. Um, how the litigation goes, um, really it's hard to know at this point. Um, there are still a number of things that uh, will need to be decided upon, including, as I said, this, uh, this primary issue as to whether or not the cases, uh, federal cases or California state cases are coordinated. Naomi, where does this currently leave you with the restaurants and businesses closed and the insurance company not paying out for your interruption of business, do you feel that you still need to be paying into the system or do you have any retaliation here with holding off payments till this is resolved? Oh, it's, I wish, I mean, no, Darren, that's a, a fine question, but, uh, <laughs> I actually, uh, ironically, my, uh, the, the same insurer that I am, uh, litigating, um, Berkeley North, I actually uh, had to re-sign up with them. Uh, <laughs> my 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 policy was coming uh, coming up for renewal on May 18th, and and uh, you know, luckily they were smart enough not to 
to decline coverage for me. Um, but, but yeah, I, I did have to re re-up with them. Um, they raised my premium a bit. They said insurance is just more expensive. They lowered my coverage. Wow. Um, there's still a virus ex- or now there's a virus exclusion on it. Um, so, you know, no recourse there. I still have to be insured even though I'm not open. Um, which is also just, I mean, it makes some, a little bit of sense since I'm still, you know, renting the space that Beast yeah. is in, um, and trying to pivot that model. And, and, but, you know, the, it's, 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 it's really no end of, a, of the uphill battle for restaurateurs right now, given the fact that, you know, we're state mandated closed still, which I am in support of, and, you know, until we can open safely, I, I don't think we should. Um, but I also, you know, am saddled just like everyone else's with this whole, you know, need to pivot the restaurant. I, I know that, you know, Beast is a yeah. tiny uh, establishment. Um, we have two or had two big, long communal tables and a big, wide open kitchen. Um, and by big, I mean really tiny, actually. <laughs> but, you know, it's a but the whole the whole building is 800 square feet. And that includes the, the bathroom and the, and the prep area in the back and everything. So um, we're actually having to totally shift our model um, and, and we can't we can't even be a sit down restaurant, I think, for for an unknown period of time coming up. Um, you know, and I, I got, uh, the PPP money, um, a couple of weeks ago, the paycheck protection money that was part of the CARES Act. Uh, unfortunately that mandated that you spend the money within eight weeks and you have to get up back to your full level of, of all your old employees hired back and on the payroll and you have to spend 75% of it on payroll. And, you know, they're, they're talking about making some fixes to that, but currently, you know, sitting on couple hundred thousand dollars that I can't use for anything, um, coming out of pocket to pay healthcare for my staff. So, you know, going further into like personal debt to cover, uh, my, my healthcare and the healthcare of my full-time employees that, that had coverage prior, um, you know, still waiting on my unemployment checks to come in. Haven't seen one yet, you know, filed like the day that everything happened. Right. So I, I, I would say that overall my, and my case is just like everyone else's essentially, like we've all got like our own individual problems. You know, some people have pivoted to a takeout model, but they're only doing 10 to 20% of their, you know, current their their past business. And, and, you know, that's not sustainable because I think, you know, obviously, as you know, and probably a lot of your listeners know, because I know you're pretty industry heavy uh, listenership, I would imagine. But I think it's important for everyone to understand that restaurants run on thin margins. And, you know, we always, we say we use this week's, uh, this, this week's income to pay last week's bills. You know, we're never sitting on reserves. So this whole time of being closed or at reduced capacity and really not knowing what the next, uh, I don't know, year or two years even looks like for restaurant industry. Um, we really need that business interruption insurance to kick in. I mean, if I, if I did have that, I wouldn't have had to furlough 30 employees. Um, you know, I, I could have continued paying people's benefits. Like, you know, I would have, I would have been able to do this pivot a lot mm. easier. And I think that the fear of course, you know, I mean, like hopefully I can get some help from an investor that will help me get through this period and, and make my pivot because I'm coming up with this new business model. It's going to be like super cool, you know, but if I, 
if I didn't have that or if I can't find that, I don't have any guarantees of that. And, and that's really what business interruption insurance should be doing for me is taking care of me so that I can keep my staff going and, and pivot my model because we don't want to shut down. My business is 12 and a half years old. Of course. And I didn't, you know, it was pumping along successfully mm-hmm. and had been no signs of change in any of the, that category, you know, it was busy and great. And then suddenly, suddenly this, and then it's like, I have to completely shift what I've been doing really for the last like 22 years of my career, building my career. And now it's like, what's, what's next. And I could use some support. I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is no one's fault in the restaurant industry. And that is what insurance is for. And I'd like to walk it down. Let's say we go to trial and the restaurants come out successful um, on this side of the case. For both of you, what does a win look like? Obviously, the money gets paid out, but are there change to insurance policies? Is there a prevention of these types of carve-outs moving forward? What do you see as success at the end of the road? So... What we hope, of course, is to get our clients um, the recovery that um, that they were entitled to under their policies. And if we're successful in proving business interruption, uh, we're entitled to essentially all of, uh, you know, for Naomi, all of her business expenses during the time that she is um our business has been interrupted. And so it's been several months already, and it's likely to be several months more uh, before she can reopen. And so whatever those costs are, we're hoping that uh, we can recover them. But everybody's policy is different. There are some policies that talk about a civil authority. Uh, that is, um, whether or not if you were forced to close by um, because of uh, a decision of the civil authority, that is, if a government forced you to close, which arguably would apply in this circumstance, um, they limit your recovery to several weeks or a month or two months, but a, a much shorter period of time. And so if we're successful under the civil authority provision, uh, there'll be less monies uh, that uh, will go to um, our clients. But Success uh, is is getting money uh, to our clients, um, getting money pursuant to the policies that they that they paid premiums for for years prior to this. Um, Long term, you know, if there are structural changes to be made, quite frankly, those aren't to those aren't going. I don't believe those will be a big part of our litigation. Um, After the SARS epidemic in 2000, I don't know, 2005, 2006, whenever it was, um, the insurance companies did try to put in certain virus exclusions and Mm -hmm. some of their policies. And that's, you know, we're dealing with that today. And, uh, you know, business interruption, um, you know, these are business interruption insurance. These are private agreements that you make with your insurance carrier. Now, if we wanted Congress to make, um, you know, a, a change, we would probably have to come from Congress to say that insurance companies can no longer exclude viruses. Uh, but that's 
that would not be the result of litigation. And, you know, Darren, it's, it's really important to understand that uh, there are just so many iterations of these insurance contracts and a victory here or a victory there doesn't mean um, or, or a defeat here or a defeat there doesn't mean right, that right. an individual restaurant um, is not entitled to a recovery. And so it's um, this is going to be a fight, as I suggested before, with a lot of, you know, there'll be a number of battles and, you know, we'll win some and they'll likely win some. And um, there may not be a clear, you know, winner at the end of the day. Um, this, this, will muddle along, you know, if we are coordinated and if we have every single insurance company uh, in front of one judge and that judge, you know, exercises real control over the litigation, it's possible that you could see a very substantial um, settlement involving a number of different insurance companies. Uh, But absent that kind of coordination, probably very difficult. And what you'll see are wins here and wins there and losses here and losses there uh, without any, um, you know, obvious winner or loser. Uh, Although, you know, it could be that if we win enough early enough, uh, they'll throw in the towel and, and say, okay, you know, let's try to reach an agreement. You know, if I were to predict, I would not predict that that would happen uh, anytime soon. I just think um, they have made it clear that they're in this for the long haul, and we have to be in this for the long haul. Naomi? Well, speaking of the long haul, I mean, I think, you know, I pursued this angle because I think it's, you know, part of the arsenal of what I have to protect both my, you know, economic interest and just a, and, a, and a moral interest, like I had mentioned before, um, you know, and part of that for, for us, you know, we, we came together, um, there are a lot of chef coalitions forming, um, you know, in, in cities and across, you know, different uh, neighboring networks. Um, and we formed the Independent Restaurant Coalition in mid-March, um, you know, just as the CARES Act was being introduced. And um, we, we got a lot of coalition support and a lot of those individual coalitions became part of the, the IRC. And I think, you know, for us, it's like looking at all of these angles and tools that we have in our arsenal, you know, business interruption insurance is a big part of that, but also, you know, looking at what can we do collectively as an industry to help you know, make sure that we have some protections in place for the future of the industry, you know, so we have uh, draft legislation, actually Earl Blumenhauer, who is my awesome, awesome awesome. congressman from Oregon. My God, it's it's just a real dream. I, 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 it actually makes me feel, he came onto a a leadership call that we had on the IRC and I actually felt like not just proud, but also like just sorry for everyone else that doesn't have as cool of a congressman as we have. Earl is I mean, the fact that he named his act, Um, the restaurants act doesn't get much cooler than that. Yeah. Yeah. So he supports this idea of stabilizing the restaurant industry with a $120 billion stabilization fund. And he's getting bipartisan support 
uh, because, you know, the fortunate thing for us in our battle is that, you know, eating at a restaurant is, is a bipartisan mm-hmm. issue. I mean, everyone needs to eat yeah. dinner. So, so we have some stuff going for us. And the fact that, you know, restaurants or are the second largest, uh, you know, private sector employer in the nation, you know, and, and so many businesses and industries feed off of, you know, being, you know, involved with the restaurant industry, you know, from winemakers to ranchers to truck drivers and and you name it. So I think that we have a long way to go, but we are making some really incredible progress for, for, for a collective, you know, that we are only a coalition that's eight weeks old now, you know, we've gotten a lot of traction on the Hill and we're looking for, you know, long-term solutions. So when you say stuff like, you know, are we going to pursue business interruption, you know, insurance, like the idea of introducing that to Congress and making yeah. sure that maybe, you know, one of our asks going forward in the future could be don't allow, um, you know, insurance companies to do this kind of, uh, dirty work. You know, it's really, it's not cool what's happening. I think we all can agree on that. We all paid for a service we thought we were going to get if something like this happened, um, and we all got blindsided when we were blanketly denied. So, you know, but but we're looking for all kinds of different angles and solutions and, you know, tax tax incentives for how many people we employ, you know, um, going forward in the future, we need a lot more help. Um, and so focusing right now on our stabilization fund and then doing our individual work of filing our claims and, and, and then reinventing our businesses. I mean, you know, it's like, it's funny because chefs are used to working really long yep. hours. I mean, where we work like always 12 to 16 hours a day, most of us. And I think, you know, if you take a bunch of chefs out of that working environment and then put, <laughs> give them tasks, like call your yeah. Congress people, I tell you what, man, people are, we're getting some traction because there are hundreds and thousands of hundreds and thousands really of chefs that are mobilizing around the country to say, we got to save this industry, not just because it's like a fun, cool industry, which it is, but because it really props up the economy. I mean, we contributed 4% of the GDP and, you know, over a trillion dollars to the economy. So it's really, we, it's an integral part of the solution of getting, America back to work. Yes, and not to mention the millions of workers that work at restaurants and then all the workers that work in tandem through the food system and things like that. Um, I want to thank both of you for taking time out of your day. If people want to follow along, more importantly, if people who are listening want to file or get involved, where can they go? How can they uh, learn more information about what you both are taking up? So uh, my name is Robert Nelson, as I mentioned, and I work for a law firm called Leaf Cabraser, Hyman and Bernstein, and Leaf is spelled L-I-E-F-F. And I'm at rnelson at lchb.com, and uh, I have been spending a tremendous amount of time uh, since uh, this uh, epidemic began uh, trying to work with uh, restaurants and, and, and bringing lawsuits. And that's what we're doing. And so if you've got business interruption insurance and are interested in going further and uh, seeing if we can uh, help you and, and pursue an action, we'd be delighted to, um, uh, you know, to take a look at your policies. And uh, we, we're also, you know, willing to tender the policy um, if necessary, if that hasn't been done by the time you 
call us. Anyway, rnelson at lchb.com if you want to talk further. I've spent you know, 30 years um, suing insurance companies and other industries, uh, the tobacco industry, the oil industry, specialized in suing industries, which is uh, probably the reason I have no hair on my head. But, <laughs> also, uh, you know, you really do want to get a lawyer who's yes. willing to fight and who um, knows how to go up against, you know, very large, you know, corporate law firms, who you know, which will be defending these large insurance companies. So, um, but pursue your, you know, pursue your rights, as Naomi said. I mean, this is, you know, these policies, you paid for them and you're entitled to the benefits of what you paid for. And that's, you know, very simply the message uh, of our cause here. And that's not to take away from the fantastic possibilities through legislation or whatever else. Um, uh, this is just, you know, this is one part of it. And this is, uh, we believe, uh, an important part because it's really just getting um, for people what they've paid for, you know, very simply. Um, and, you know, we're, as I mentioned before, I think we're going to win some and we're going to lose some and we hope we win more than we lose. And we hope, you know, we, it's, we hope it's your case that we win. Anyway, but um, me too. <laughs> uh, you know, and for for my stuff, you know, in addition to you know, I chose Leaf Cabraser because they have you know hundreds and hundreds and millions of man hours on suing big uh, nasty corporations, yep. but also uh, you know, on a personal level, for anybody that is in the industry um, or just likes the industry and wants to help us. Um, going to our website at saverestaurants.com um, and checking it out, um, reposting uh, our social media posts um, and following along as we start to ask for people to call their Congress people and their representatives and just say they support the stabilization fund that we're putting out there because it really does a lot more than just, you know, save your favorite neighborhood restaurant. It does all of the work that you said earlier, Darren, and giving uh, other businesses a chance that are connected to restaurants to survive and thrive through this crisis as well. Awesome. So. Well, I cannot thank you two enough for taking the time and also taking up the mantle for this fight. It's a really, really important one. We have another song from the archives and then a live performance from The Natural here on Stacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Yo, had to brush my teeth and shit, yo Had to do a lot of shit, know what I'm saying? That's how we do this Yo, this ain't LA, yo Some people think New York is just like LA But they wrong and shit Cause the topography is totally different The geography, the weather systems, the microclimates are totally different There's a huge influx of different types of people and shit Know what I'm saying? So anybody who thinks that LA is exactly like New York Or New York's exactly like LA Those motherfuckers are just wrong and shit Know what I'm saying? And that's a huge thing They're talking about it on CNN and shit Deal with this shit Know what I'm saying? Yo, yo Everything's like baby In the New York city In the New York city 
I didn't grow up in New York, but I watched Taxi a lot, and that basically gave me everything I need to know about New York and shit. That melancholy theme song with that taxi going over that bridge. Yo, that's everything, man. That's New York. You know what I'm saying? Yo, New York is a confluence of different events. Most people can never even claim that they even lived here and shit, but that's okay. That's just the nature of New York. You think the Native Americans think that the locals are local? Think again, motherfucker. <laughs> I know that and stuff, but if you say Brooklyn, it automatically unifies people in a very strange way. Even if they live in Queens and stuff, or maybe the East Village, or maybe the West Village, there's no point in going anywhere above 14th Street. Yo, getting across the city is really tough, but if you live in the kind of area that has a crosstown line, you're really lucky and shit. Know what I'm saying? Nobody wants to go up there, but they have to because business is up there and shit. Know what I'm saying? Yo, when my Soho hangers, my Soho hangers, Soho's really weird because I don't know how to navigate so. Soho hangers, Soho hangers, lots of thin, tall people walking around, Apple stores, what the fuck they doing them clowns, gotta get some pistachios at a market that's overpriced and shit, come on, let's do this, yo, you ever been to that one place, nah, I've never been to that one place, do you know about that other place, I don't know about that other place, do you know that new place, I don't know about the new place, did you hear about the place that's about to open, yeah, did you hear about the place that's gonna close, yeah, did you hear about that one place, ah, it doesn't matter, it's about to hold on, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, New York City, City, uh, uh. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, New York City, City, uh, uh. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, New York City, City, uh, uh. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, New York City, City, uh, 
Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, New York City, City, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, New York City, City, Brooklyn, 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 This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or a small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash snacky. Kip, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with us and share some songs with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, Darren, thanks so much for having me. I'm psyched to be here. Uh, so we ran in similar circles back in the day, in parallel circles in Brooklyn, uh, which we both called home for for many many years, and now I'm out in LA. But you're out in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. Um, you had a family. You're you have this new project, The Natural. But how has being out of the city shifted your creative process or changed the way that you look at writing songs? When I can only speak from personal experience, you know, Brooklyn was such an inspiration to me for so many years of of creating things. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure if like the change of where I'm living has affected where I'm writing, what I'm writing, or like the change in my lifestyle being a parent has affected it. Um, but I'm, for whatever reason, you know, I, I wrote the last uh, song for my old band probably around 2015. My daughter was born in 2016, and I, I moved uh, to Princeton, New Jersey, which is for those that don't know, it's just a small little college town in in New Jersey. Um, it's pretty, you can walk, walk everywhere. It's, it's pretty, um, nice. It's really nice. So I'm not sure if I'm not like, I don't know if I'm writing songs about trees and sidewalks or whatever. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if it's had like a, a real market effect, um, in terms of what's inspiring me, but I think my lifestyle, I was just home so much with my daughter when she was born. My wife works full time and, uh, I was just, you know, home for the first year and a half of her life, just hanging out with her and just kind of playing guitar by myself to her or to myself, you know? And um, so I I think the, the modes of like how I was thinking about writing like music just changed so much from not being a group project so much where you go to a band practice space and you rock out for however many hours to like, just, you know, kind of making music on an instrument by yourself, like away, away from people. And, And I think maybe that, um, social isolation though i mean i guess that's a loaded word now might have yeah. uh had some impact on how i was writing i think about my old band and i think about i was always trying to impress the other people in the band with like the music i was making i was like oh sure. i really hope 
I really hope, you know, Peggy likes this song or Kurt's going to like this song or, or whatever. But um, for this, I was just kind of pleasing myself uh, for, for worse or better. I, I think that's probably the, the bigger impact on how I was creating. I mean, that's, you know, a whole career and a successful band being in pains of being pure at heart. Um, I have to imagine that some of the success and some of the things that you saw and did with the band uh, still has an influence on you today, even if you're doing a solo project now. Yeah, I mean, I think that experience is um, really special. Like, I, I don't think I don't think you can really measure it adequately. Like the the rare opportunity where you start a band with your friends and you write mm. some songs and then more than like 12 people care. Like I think up to 18 <laughs> people cared. And that was like pretty, <laughs> for indie pop, that was like pretty good. And to be able to travel and play music and do all that stuff, like that's, I wasn't, I was in bands for a long time before Pains and literally like nothing I ever did even like registered like above like, the zip code that we were like living in and like sure. playing to like some friends at, at, at a bar or whatever, a ping pong room or whatever. So um, Pains was such a different experience and the chance to make music that um, people seemed to care about that weren't like my mom um, is, is pretty rare uh, for, for anyone making music. And it's something I appreciated. And I, and I probably appreciated it even too much where I was like, so like self-conscious that I, we had to like take it, seriously in some way where I was like, dude, this doesn't happen ever. So we have to be like really hardworking and like um, maybe I like sort of missed the point that it should be also like fun and kind of relaxed. Like I think I was like, I was like, you you know what I'm saying? It's like, I kind of, uh, I might've been a little too like, guys, you don't realize this never happened. So we have to really like, you know, try our best all the time or something like that. That's pretty like, that was sort of like, maybe I went too much in that direction. Yeah, but I think part of success or a good chunk of success is that hard work and that grind that some people don't put in uh, and that can separate your band being a successful band or at least being a part of that versus writing some really amazing songs and then not working at the other side of being a band. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am not disparaging that working at what you love to do is really important. Um, but I don't think working hard at something makes it better all the time. And I think there's some Fair. people that get um, hung up on the idea that they're working so hard at something and they're expecting some reward and some they they keep on hitting the magic tree, as it were, and just expecting you know golden apples to come down. And I think I think you can get caught up in a sort of worshiping a sort of uh, false, false God. If you think like, oh, I just, I just need to work hard so that I succeed. You're kind of missing the point that these are songs. They should last about three minutes and probably maybe you should spend maybe five minutes thinking about how to write them beforehand. And then um, hopefully, you know, it's like, there's nothing worse than someone that works so hard at something and then listening to it feels like a labor. You know what I'm saying? Like like a little bit like, it's like, okay, like, it's rock and roll. It should be fun. It should be light at times. And um, I mean, I think with this new project, I'm really trying to just make things in the moment and not uh, fixate on someone else's idea of what the right way or the, the the better way of doing things is. Just kind of make things in my own way, I hope. And I hope people can feel that there's a human being at the other end of the 
um, MP3. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the new project, which is relatively new, but not didn't get started this week. It's you've been doing the natural for a couple of years now. And um, I, one of the best things I read about it, because it actually made me pause was that it was neither a solo project nor side project, um, which I've never heard a, uh, a group described that way. Can you explain? <laughs> I mean, it, you know, you read so much stuff and you read so many PR or music releases or interviews and for anything to, to give you pause to go like, okay, I got to ask him. So what does that mean? Um, what does that mean to you? I think that might have been like an obnoxious way of like <laughs> phrasing it. Like when you put it back to me, I was like, well, it's just one person, but it is neither solo or side. No, I think I think that was actually when I started out, I – um. I was having a hard time because I didn't really want to leave behind my old group. Um, sure. And I think I was getting into like what I was saying before of maybe taking it too seriously where I was like, I wanted to do some new music, but I didn't want it to perceive, be perceived as some like offshoot of what I was doing before. It was so different. Right. And it came from the thing, it came from a perspective of what I was feeling at that time that was wholly my life, you know, and, and still is. And yet at the other end, I had this other project that, you know, I, I didn't want to be disrespectful to it. it. It wasn't relating to it myself, but there was people that cared about it. And I didn't want to say, you know, be like, oh, this isn't me, but it, it wasn't me anymore. And, and I think after maybe that got written, that sort of strange phrasing, I, I made the decision to just be like, listen, my, the old band is, is done. Like it, it took a little while to get there, but this is, this is the music that I'm making now. And I, I believe in that it is my music, but I believe it really something about collaborating with other people still makes it different than if it was just me. And I, I know that's kind of hard to explain, but when I made this record, um, I couldn't have done it. Um, and the record's not out yet because of, you know, the world, the way it is right now. But when I made this yeah. record that I'm working on or worked on, it's done. Um, it was really, yeah, I wrote the songs, but the playing of uh, Brian and Jacob who played drums and bass respectively and Kyle uh, who played keyboards on it, just it just changed the dynamic of it so much. And it really brought, it really brought different feelings to it and a different excitement to it. So, um, I mean, I guess... I guess it is a solo project, but I, I just didn't want to diminish that other people were involved. And, and even besides just playing it, like the guy that recorded it, the first EP uh, did, and he recorded the record too. this guy, Andy Savers, he gave me so much inspiration. And of course, I've been so used to like recording records with like my old band where it's like, we're going to play to the metronome. We're going to do another take of this and try to get everything to sound just right and precise and he like realized that the things that maybe I didn't even understand about myself was that I just like to, he just basically gave me a guitar and a microphone and he said, play the song and sing it. And I was like, what? Like, don't we have to like, you know, like first do the, this rough track that I then play to it. And, and he was just like, no, just it's a song. You like writing songs and you like playing songs. So just here's a microphone and here's a guitar. And that's how we made that first EP. It was like, an afternoon. I went over to his little studio and like he handed me a guitar and a microphone and we 
sang some songs and then we went to the pub and had some beers and that was it. And it, it was such a liberating uh, way of creating. And it just was so different than what I'd experienced before and not saying the way before was wrong. It just, lots of people create in different ways. It just, it all of a sudden started to make sense again. Um, And the music was really connecting with me and my life and not uh, other people's expectations or what I even perceived other people's expectations to be. But I apologize for um, the really long-winded phrasing of no, what, no, no. What, what the what the band or the project or whatever it is, is. I always think project's a bad term. It sounds like I'm like at the science fair or something like that. I I'm like, it's like, this is my new project. I'm like, I don't know, man. I got like um, barely passing grades in every um, laboratory kind of <laughs> environment I've been in. So, <laughs> I mean, look, when you're talking about groups and bands, you know, the, the source runs a little dry after you use the same sort of phrases again and again. Um, let's, uh, let's hear a song. Uh, what are you going to play for us first? All right. So the first song is a song I wrote called, Why Don't You Come Out Anymore? Um, and uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's weirdly a prescient <laughs> title at the moment. Yeah, it is very appropriate. And um, I think we know the answer of why people are not coming out anymore, at least in this moment, at least, at least for this moment. Um, all right, well, here we go. We've got The Natural live here on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org.
twin engine box just to hear a silent song. If a man to make it something you know wish to be, I just love your morning greyhounds and a glimpse of your disease. I tell you I'm no better and you've always known the truth. So never send these letters, I just please myself to you. So why do I still sail in the attic of my head? Well, that was fantastic. Uh, uh, a man, a guitar, a microphone. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it definitely has um, a different feel and you can feel a different sort of creative process that goes into the, the type of music you're making right now. Um, but how have you shifted that? You know, obviously this has been around for two years it's, or a couple of years. It's, you're, it's on the tail end of your, of your, of your last band. Um, how has the creative uh, process evolved? Because it sounds like you've you've allowed yourself a little bit more freedom um, as the project stretched out. You know, I think uh, that's a good question. You know, I, I I don't think it's evolved. Maybe it's like devolved. Um, you know, it's <laughs> like I think this idea that like there's progress to be made and we're always making things better. I I, I always. I kind of think I, I'm going back more to um, a less self-conscious kind of um, way of making music. And I know that sounds like ridiculous when you're like actually talking about how not self-conscious you are, because that's a form of being self-conscious. <laughs> but um, I really think that um, even though you're saying this album took two years to make, it really took like a couple of days. And um and I think that's part of the fun is that I, I have limitations in terms of how much time I had, especially like, you know, with each time I sort of started this thing, um, my daughter like was finally old enough and I was kind of about to be able to travel a little bit and like sort of focus on music again. And then um, I was about to have another child. So I had to put everything on hold again. So just finding a couple of days here or there to like make the record was, I mean, I know it's been a while, um, but it really was almost like a handful of days over a handful of years <laughs> to put it together. You. you know what I'm saying? So, and I, and I think that's, I think that's cool. Like, I really think like you have to make, it's like part of my life. Like, you know, it's like the music mm. is part of my life and finding time to make the music is part of what my life is. It's like, I don't want to leave my, my kids like for long periods of time when they're super young. I don't want to put that sure. pressure on my partner. And like, no, So right now it's like, I needed to just like do things really fast and it was cool that doing things that way had a result that was, um, I think turned out really in a way that made me happy. Um, so I think, yeah, like the creative process is like making the best out of what your life is. And that sort of is a way of channeling what your life is into the music. Yeah. I mean, look, as one dad to another, we do all of our recordings now uh, when my daughter naps in the middle of the day. 
And part of that adjustment is because you want to spend as much time with your kid as possible, but you also still want to find time to create. Um, and it just forces you to look at what you're going to make and how you're going to do it in a completely different light than, say, early to mid-20s running around Brooklyn with no family. And it's just it's just a different type of approach. Well, in a weird way, though, it's like, I mean, I kind of – I used to live in Portland, Oregon before I moved to Brooklyn. And, um, yeah. and I had like – Portland was so cheap then. It was like you could work like 10 hours a week at a call center charging people's prepaid calling cards and stuff. <laughs> and then you could still have like six hours to jam in a house you rented for like $150 a month or something. You know, uh, it's like it was that there was like endless time. But I don't think it made the music we were making any better to have mm. so much time to do it. And when I came to New York, everyone, not just me, like, um, everyone in my group like was working really hard and had like very little time to like get together and play music. And so those early practices were just like super, they had to be really focused. And I think it kind of made, I'm not saying life should be harder just to make good art. That seems like a kind of false idea. I'd rather just like have six hours a day to jam in the basement. But um, yeah. But I think there was something about having such limited time, even with pains to like write and record music that made us like kind of, you know, like, all right, we're going to like figure out how this song goes and not just, you know, eat gummy bears or whatever, you know, the whole time. So, uh, um, and so even now, I I think that's like the reality of my life, but it's, I I don't want to say everything's a blessing. Like it's, but like it really, the limitation does like, create something good even if sometimes it's annoying to have limitations you know yes i mean you can hear that in the ep because um and if i read this correctly you recorded everything or everything's one take which uh you sort of alluded to in the first part of our conversation um what what made you want to just put out one take or did you record multiple takes and pick the best one? What was the process of recording that? Because it sounds like it's it's now fitting into your lifestyle of how you did it, which was like, we're going to sit down, we're going to knock it out. It's going to be very natural. It's going to be very me, very raw, but it's still going to be something really special. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I, I've, I'm always skeptical when bands say everything was done in one take. <laughs> you know, it's like, everyone's like, yeah, it's just like one take. I'm like, on, we, we just nailed it out, guys. You just, every, it's like you didn't like just forget the words on the second verse one time and say like, let's just start over again. Um, <laughs> it, it, the first EP wasn't one take, but it was an afternoon. It was like an afternoon of making music. So like, that's fine. That's so I, mean, I, I don't, I don't want to mythologize myself or anything <laughs> like that. Like, but I went over to my buddy's house. We had an afternoon and like we made four songs and that was cool. And then we went to the pub and, uh, and then it was like for, yeah, I mean, I, but the, that's the kind of idea of it is to like create in the moment and not obsess yeah. over perfection. And like, um, not saying I'm not trying to do the best I can still, like there's kind of like, yeah, we did this album pretty much live, but the people that played on it, like I'm, I'm no rocket scientist at playing the uh, guitar or whatever, but, um, like the guys, I, play with and sarah who did some backing vocals on it it was like they're really good at music so i think it's kind of like a good balance between like sort of my um sort of i i really believe in a sort of amateur kind of style of 
of, of creating things. Like you don't have to be a, a trained um, person to make something, but it's also kind of cool when you get to play with people who, who are pretty good. Like, you know, it's, it's like, yeah. it's kind of nice when like, I'm the worst one in the room, you know, I, I don't know how to say that the right way, but no. like, there's no. some, there's, there's a place for like musical ability in the world too. Like, I don't want to denigrate yeah. that because people, a lot of those old records that people like from, you know, the sixties or whatever, it's like, yeah, it's like Dylan did his thing, but he was also like being backed by some like really awesome people like playing behind oh, yeah. him, like and transforming sort of like his ideas into something uh, i mean that, the, the oh. legendary wrecking crew you know who turned so many songs into just masterpieces was essentially the sounds of of that era yeah and it's like i think there was like a strange like rock and roll wasn't invented yet so you had people that weren't rock musicians sort of playing along to uh, a new kind of music and kind of inventing it as they go around along, but they had like training in all sorts of different uh, styles and backgrounds. It's like an interesting. It was it's an interesting historical time, and I'm not trying to recreate that time or do anything like that's purposefully like we got to do it like they did it back then. I think that that <laughs> outlook is like pretty boring or or not not even boring. Just it's like what do you get then? You like really just get like something that already existed exactly. and or yeah. and then sort of like probably not as good a version of it. So. Um, I don't, I don't know if like being like old, I, my, for whatever reason, I got my daughter to start calling me old dad. Um, <laughs> she's like, she calls me, she calls me old dad. Like, uh, she's like, Hey, old dad. I'm like, what's up? Um, but yeah, I mean, being old dad, like makes me feel like pretty happy just to make things that I want to make them and hope that people see some, some, uh, something good in that. And if they don't, I, I still like making songs and, and playing them. Yeah. Old Dad's also a, a great name for another project or band. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like I'm, I don't have like vanity plates on my station wagon yet, so I'm not. Oh. not but I'm saying if I did, maybe like a zero LD. Oh, that'd be yeah. great. You know, maybe like just, maybe like an E at the end of old. Like it's like a sort of oh uh, yeah archaic. Just, uh, you pull up to Hoagie Haven and the Old Dad mobile, and Wait, there you, you go. What about Hoagie Haven? Dude, I, I mean, my dad worked and lived out of Princeton for years, and we grew up in Philadelphia. I know the Princeton Record Exchange. I know Princeton pretty well. Oh, my goodness. Well, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, too. My mom, like, lived – we moved all over. I was, like, in a bunch of places. But, um, yeah, I remember, like, that's that's so that's so crazy. Oh, yeah. Princeton Record oh. Exchange is awesome. Like, everyone – I mean, I, I don't want to disparage anything, but, like, all my friends when I moved to – Princeton were like, oh man, sorry, you have to leave New York, or had this attitude that something no. bad was happening to me. I'm like, Princeton's nice. Like every street when I like go for a walk with my daughter or my son is like a public park. You know, I it know. feels like every even like a normal street feels like really nice for children. And um there's the Princeton Record Exchange is amazing. Like people from New York uh-huh. come down to there, people from Philly go there. WPRB yeah. is an awesome college radio station in Princeton. Yeah. Like And it's a gorgeous it's, campus. And it's it's an it's a nice it's a nice place and there's like you can walk everywhere it's like not that I mean it's different than New York but it's it's also cosmopolitan because like people are all here from all over the world so it's not like yeah I think maybe people here in New Jersey and they think oh it's like some suburban strip mall kind of thing like whatever that's fine too but it's actually like I, I you know the people I know here are from like all over and it's it's cool and um there's a good record store and hopefully yeah. everything will get back to um what made it so nice before and you can just walk everywhere and you know all that good I stuff. mean 
look, if you got a good record store, you can get a good sandwich. I mean, that's, you know, check and check. Um, all right, let's hear uh, let's hear another song. Um, what do you got for us next? All right, so the next song's a song called New Moon. Sweet. Okay, well, here we go. The Natural here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The light of the new moon, I only get a dark of you, and I look for you, and you go on scene. Tied down in his living room, your dream is sinking, and the dunes kick off your sandy shoes and curve your jeans. Did you ever think you'd see the day when you turn 33 and wanted to be anywhere but here? I don't mean to hold you still half naked with the road a bill to wake up in, alone with me right there. Oh, it's time to say. Survive another night Then another night Oh, it's time To say not a word of anything We did our secrets won't be his You won't be mine You don't need to be so down You look nice and your mother's gone Well, we just come together around your statue I don't mean to eulogize or Look for doubt behind your eyes Don't even want to say goodbye But I got to Then another night Oh, it's time Say not a word of anything We did our secrets won't be his And you won't be mine And I'll be alright another another awesome tune um and thank you for sharing with us and you've actually been sharing a lot of music uh during the the pandemic shelter at home working out of our houses nonstop. um you've been doing a couple things um the first one i want to talk about is your cover series because it's been pretty enjoyable to not only hear you play some covers, but then to see uh, what songs you pick. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this series and how you pick the songs that you want to play? 
Yeah, well, that's that's nice that you like it. You know, when when this all started and we we're kind of stuck in our house and and we still are stuck in our house, I guess it was so nice to have just something to look forward to doing each night. You know, after my my kids went to bed and um, if I wasn't too tired, um, I would just come down to the basement and sort of like pick a song that I liked or had some kind of significance to me in some way and just try to play it. Um, I think there's something, I think there's something cool about doing covers. There's like a, there's sort of like a a bad version of doing covers where people sort of say, (laughs) no, no, not, not, not bad. Like they're bad versions, but people use it as like an opportunity to like piggy bank, piggyback on someone else's popularity. Like they're like, Oh, so-and-so is famous. If I cover their song, or if it's like an ironic thing where it's like, I'm just like a middle-aged dad. But if I like cover like this cool, like 15 year old's music, like people, will, I, I don't like that sort of thing. Um, I'm sure. So we're not going to hear like old dad doing TikTok songs, are we? I know. But I mean, but there's stuff, there's stuff that I like, like, like genuinely, like I did a cover of like Lord, like I mean, yeah. on liability. It's like, I'm not, I guess I'm like kind of like talking out of both sides of my mouth. Like I don't, sure. I mean, I see the worst intentions in people when it's, it's like, uh, there was that dude that did like the Taylor Swift cover album, but it just felt like so self-serving and like, kind of, I mean, look, if you lived through the nineties, you saw a lot of bands who had careers off of covering someone else's song. Yeah. I mean, but that is also like, a, a, I mean, it can be a really cool thing too. Like, like Fairport convention did a bunch of like, they did like tons of covers, but it was like, they like brought something really, of themselves to it even like kind of i mean look built a spill doug marsh is one of my heroes and part of why i love seeing them play live is what covers are they going to take and make their own yeah like or like when dinosaur jr covers the cure it was cool it was like oh yeah it wasn't just like oh we're gonna play this popular song so we can be popular it was like let's take this music that like if you have a genuine connection to then you can kind of interpret it um as you will. And there was, I even almost, honestly, I was doing this series of covers and I was like, I got stuck because there was a song I was about to do. And then I was like, do I really love it? Or is it just kind of, <laughs> is it kind of like, I, I don't, I don't know how to say it. It's like, it, it felt a little bit too much of that category of. Um, uh, I got it. You're like, am I doing this because I love it? Or am I doing it because I think people look at it and be like, oh, that's cool. Or like, or it's like, that's unexpected. But I was just kind of yeah. like, you know what? I, I don't, I don't want to like go to bat. Like usually the stuff I cover, I, I want to be able to go to bat for it. And like if I if someone's like, Do you really like Lord's second album? I'm like, I really do. Or if someone's like, Do you like um Tori Amos? I genuinely like hundred percent love Tori, but like I don't know. I think like I I mean I think I know. I don't want to say the band's name because it's like they're 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 like good and I respect what they do, but it's just it was like sort of felt like almost a little farcical. But yeah, so and, and but then I kind of got sidetracked by that whole experience and then i started questioning everything and why was i doing what i was doing but like more honestly i was just i i got i never had played video games for like a really long time like maybe 10 years 15 years or whatever i I don't know but i got this nintendo switch and i started playing skyrim at night this game where you're sort of like you walk around in this ancient world and you fight dragons and so like i somehow decided to play skyrim instead of making uh, music in my basement and that was like a bad decision and i need to go back I, I think to music look i think we're we're going to be at home for a long haul and um you know part of having that creative itch that you need to scratch is that if you you know scratch it into submission then then it doesn't itch anymore i don't want to interrupt you but like i i think that's that's what i'm trying to get at it's like all these people that like 
want to have a music career or like treat or they're all, I always hear bands are talking about I treat my music like my job you know and I'm like the whole point of yeah. music is to not have a job you know it's like <laughs> it's like the whole point of is doing something that doesn't feel like you're working that doesn't feel like I mean work as hard on it as you want and that's cool and it's satisfying for me to work on my music but it never should feel like work and I, the, the whole language about it like um the sense of like, if I work very hard on my music, I deserve to make this much income per year as a result. And if that doesn't happen, then there's something wrong with society. It's like, I don't know, man, just, I, I, I think you need to have, have, have joy in what you're doing. And if you make something with joy in your heart, um, that's its own reward. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you can create something that you love and then um, other people at least like it, or respect it, that is a rarefied thing. It's it's a really just, and as you get older, that becomes more and more true as well. And be like, wow, I made something out of nothing, and then other people liked it, and that's that's cool in its own. You know, the thing is, I think about a lot is that my mom always loved my old band. She'd always be like, really liked it, but I think she liked it because it was me. You know, and it's yeah. like you know, moms aren't really good like. You, you, usually your mom's going to like what you're doing, you know, hopefully. Um, hopefully. I, I actually I actually feel like the music I'm making now, my mom would like it, um, even if it wasn't me, you know? And so mm. that, feel, that feels kind of good being like, my mom, my mom likes cool stuff. Like she likes, you know, Leonard Cohen and like, she kind of likes that sort of outlaw country or like Keith Richards is sort of her like ideal guy. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of think it's like, it's cool to be making something that even if like, I mean, I just don't, you know, it's like not fair to say I don't care, but like, cause I have bands are like, we don't care what other people think, but I really, I just, I just want to be as good as people thought I was, but I wasn't before. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think I got I a disproportionate amount of people thinking I got, I, I think I got too much praise for stuff I didn't deserve maybe in the past. And I, and I, I, I would be happy if I do something deserving that um, no one cares about. But I would feel like I'd balance out the, the, the balance of the universe if I, if I was like did something like actually decent, you know, whether anyone yeah. listens to it or not, you know. I mean, at some point, everyone wants to be that sort of really cool project that no one discovers until much later. And someone was like, "Man, that was really awesome." That was really cool what they did. Yeah, I mean, I, I think again, I, I think that's like there's still like some ego attached to that, and like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be an undiscovered gem. Like that's that's ridiculous. I mean, I always used to say it's better to be overrated um, than like underrated. You know, it's just like a, it's a nice uh, way to go through life, I suppose. But like at the same time, I, I would like to get my um, musical karma back in line, probably, and not like. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like in my old band, like people would be like, write nice things about us and we could like barely play the G chord, you know? And I was like, now I, now I definitely know how to play the G chord. Um, and uh, sometimes even the C and the D. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm sort of doing my penance. I, I hear you. Um, and uh, during this time, you're also doing live concerts. I know you played earlier this week, um, but how has been performing live over the internet been? for you it's interesting i i uh i really wanted this band or project or musical creation to be one of uh of intimacy 
sure. I wanted to make something that could go anywhere and, and play anywhere and not say no to anyone. You know, if someone's like, do you want to play this show in my living room? I, or whatever with like a, with a full band, there's always this wait, is it, is the PA this size or is, do we have enough amps or like whatever you, there's all these considerations to be able to say yes to things. And it was limiting what we were able to do. And it felt kind of uh, stiltifying. Um, and I wanted to do music where literally all I had to do was show up and be myself mm. and play guitar and sing a song. And that could happen in any, any place and any time just about. So, um, so I was really excited for this new music I was making to be able to, you know, share it with people and wherever it was and whatever context it was. Um, doing it over the internet, I mean, it's it's not the same as that, uh, but I like the ability that it's not the same that I don't have that connection with people and be able to stand in front of them and play music. I think that that changes something about how you relate to the music, but I do like the idea that I don't have to make apologies for like, oh, I'm sorry, it's just me. It's not the band or it's just, you know, I they can see I'm able to make music the way I was going to make music anyway. And it's not that different um, uh, from doing it in my basement as opposed to doing it in their basement. Got it. Well, listen, I want to make sure we have enough time for one more song. But if people want to check out the EP or watch some of the covers or check out your next live concert or see when the next album's coming out. Essentially, follow along with all your endeavors. Uh, where can they go? What's the best place to follow along with you? Oh, like, I'm on the internet, so um, <laughs> it's the spelling, the spell, I, I mean, if you're interested, the spelling is a little weird. It's, uh, like, Robert Redford probably, you know, for some reason, like, got to the the, the, the correct spelling first. Um, yeah. But, um... Great movie. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's awesome. I mean, I, I, the book's a bummer, but like the movie's so good that I'd rather just believe in the movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's all it's all about redemption, right? It's about someone who was like sort of maybe blessed with too much, uh, too many gifts too soon, and made some bad choices, but then sort of got one last chance as an old dad to uh, hit one out of the park. Um, yeah. So the, the natural, it's a uh, T H E, uh, and then I think uh, natural is about N A T V. R-A-L. I like the idea of spelling the word natural in an unnatural way. I thought that was kind of... Because if you spell with a U, you're kind of like, hey, man, we just got some wooden instruments and we're going out oh, yeah. there into the country and just like doing it for real because that's the realest thing that could ever real. Like, I like I like the idea of being like, ah, I'm not that real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, all right. So what's the last song you're going to play for us? It's called Sun Blisters. It's about doing bad things and not feeling so bad about it. Mm. I think it's just called getting older. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe staying younger. I don't know. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you to Leah for setting this up. Thank you to everyone at Heritage. Here we go. One last song for The Natural here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.